0: Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein.
1: Good afternoon or evening, depending on your time zone, and welcome. I'd like to thank the Variety Channel of the Voice America Network for the opportunity to discuss the many facets of archaeological practice and research in the 21st century. I'm your host, Joe Schuldenrein, and I'm an archaeologist. That is, by, that is not my segue into any kind of a 12-step program confessional, but just my way of saying that for better or for worse, I'll be your host and guide for this journey into the past. Archaeology means many things to many people. What it is not is about dinosaurs. So if you're tuning in to find out about how dinosaurs ruled the world, you've tuned into the wrong place. That's another Spielberg movie. Archaeology is to some degree about that cool-looking dude with the beat-up fedora, and we will discuss that momentarily. However, first and foremost, archaeology is about exploring the past to gain insights into our evolutionary history. I repeat, our evolutionary history, our present condition, and perhaps more significantly, into our future world. In this series, I hope to expose you to the development of archaeology as a practice that is by its nature interdisciplinary and crosses over into many traditional fields. Evolution. Religion, natural science, biological sciences, humanities, social science, art, architecture, philosophy, and then circling right back into religion and science. In the 21st century, archaeology has acquired acquired a certain cachet or hipness, if you will, thanks to our buddy, Mr. Jones. And it has moved into the realm of other disciplines, marketing, sales, fashion. you got to love that bullwhip, fedora, cargo pants combo and it extends more than ever into the world of historic preservation, cultural heritage, law, economic development, and, yes, geopolitics. Over the past decade or so, the performance of compliance in legally driven archaeology has become such a dominant part of the profession's profile that I'd venture to say that about 80 to 90 percent of archaeological work on an international scale is powered by preservation requirements and legal compliance. Those concerns are increasingly prominent in a world in which the watchword sustainability as well as a dwindling natural resource base forces us to preserve what would otherwise disappear because of development. What does that mean for archaeology? In basic terms, this means that going forward, we are going to excavate increasingly where development interests tell us to excavate and not necessarily where we feel we should, where the cool stuff is. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? That's not my call, but it's a pretty clear situation that this is the direction our profession is taking, and the world's economic state is the driver of that bus, and we'll get into these types of topics down the road. So what does all this have to do with Indiana Jones? In a word, plenty. And the reason was the timing of the release of these movies a quarter of a century ago Raiders of the Lost Ark came out in 1981, and it was followed by The Temple of Doom in 1984, and The Last Crusade in 1989. Only two subsequent films were released, the last in 2008, so the heyday of the Indiana Jones craze began really in the 1980s. That turned out to be a prophetic and arguably a turning point for archaeological interest funding and growth. Those of us crusty and weathered enough to remember the early part of that decade don't necessarily look upon it fondly. In the 1960s and 70s, archaeology generally, and American archaeology in particular, experienced a period of grand expansion, powered in large part by the passage of preservation laws and the general alliance of the preservation and environmental movements. Funding by private foundations also surged, and major advances were made in the search for human origins. Archaeological companies took root at that time and university research facilities thrived. In the 1980s, the incoming administration decided that the brakes had to be put on the regulatory processes. Interior Secretary James Watt in particular paid, played a major role in freeing up developed interests in protected federal lands. International development agencies also followed suit to some degree. And how did this vote for archaeology? Well, To quote his broker's advice to a famous Marx brother during the Wall Street crash of 1929, quote, the jig is up, Groucho, and the assault on archaeology during the 1980s was very, very real. With that incoming administration, and I won't say which, but do the math, and the initials are RR, there were several high-profile media exposés that painted the profession in a less-than-favorable light. Perhaps the most glaring example was a piece on 60 Minutes in which Barbara Walters examined excavations at the site of the New Maloney's Dam in California and ranted and railed about the huge expansion expenditure of funds on that project. One and a half million dollars. Yes, serious money at the time. But this was a multi-year project. Then one of our colleagues found out that this was her yearly salary and we flirted with the idea of writing a letter of complaint And did nothing. And then along came Indy. And while it's not fair to say that the archaeological climate changed overnight, it became clear that an awareness of this profession catapulted and captivated the international public like nothing had since the days of Boris Karloff and the famous Egyptian mummy movies of the 1930s. But here, on a much grander scale, because of the power of commercialism and marketing. As my guest, Dr. Eric Klein, will explain in the upcoming segment, the ethos of Indiana Jones remains pervasive. And I would submit that many young professional archaeologists would be stretching the truth if they didn't admit to themselves that much of the motivation to pursue this career did not stem from an Indy-related inspiration. As a sidebar, I would note that interest in archaeology seems to follow parallel trends of tough economic times glossy movies, and action heroes. Are we looking at a major surge in interest in archaeology these days? Well, I'm not sure. The immediate reaction to the newfound surge of popularity within the archaeological community was, believe it or not, very mixed. Our image, per se, as archaeologists is sometimes is somewhat variable, I suppose. But even Indy notes in the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles that, quote, 70% of all archaeology is done in the library, end quote. And I can safely recommend to some of our colleagues to this this day, fellas, please, you need to get out more. In any case, archaeologists, like professionals in many other fields, are very possessive of of their craft. Newfound popular imagery notwithstanding, many still felt at that time that the Indy phenomenon was an invasion of their turf to some degree that it distorted the practice of archaeology to a somewhat larger degree, and most important, that it promoted a certain wanton license to dig on the part of adventurers and citizens who were so disposed both for financial gain and sheer adventure. And that latter concern, commonly referred to as looting, is a major no-no. And even at that time in the 1980s, it was against the law in many states, and it was a serious concern. These reservations notwithstanding, there was, at the time, a nagging curiosity amongst our lot as to the identity of the real Indiana Jones. Archaeologists are, after all, curious by nature. Was Indy modeled after one person? Was he a composite? I am amazed that even some of my more ostensibly sophisticated above-it-all colleagues are tormented by that question. I suppose I could have gone to Spielberg or Lucas with that one. Nah, I didn't do that. I don't think they'd have bothered to respond. However, there are clues too numerous to mention that are dispersed throughout the films. No less than 10 individuals have been suggestions, suggested as the model for Indiana Jones. One of my guests next week, Dr. Stephen Lexon, guarantees that it is paleontologist Dr. Roy Chapman Andrews, the collector of snakes that Indy was so f- afraid of. Dr. Klein, my next guest, are agreed that Indy is probably a composite, but we both lean towards Dr. Robert Braidwood of the University of Chicago. Braidwood was a pioneer in the study of early village life in the Near East and uncovered some of the earliest plant domesticates. Lots of clues here. Indy studied with Dr. Abner Ravenwood at the University of Chicago. Bob Braidwood had a large farm in Indiana. I knew him in, in his later years. Indy did not always get along with his advisor at the University of Chicago. I certainly didn't get along with mine at that institution, so I'm going with Braidwood. Now, while many archaeologists did not embrace the indie phenomenon, a significant minority of them seized the opportunity to spread the word about preservation and to fight against budget cuts and the elimination of laws that stress the importance of our cultural resources. They adopted a common Hollywood refrain there is no such thing as bad publicity. We tried our own version of a Carl Sagan syndrome. You may recall him as the popularizer of the astronomy. Uh, of astronomy who appeared on numerous TV talk shows, albeit on a lower scale, we never got to the Johnny Carson show, nor did we have a catchphrase like billions upon billions of stars. Nevertheless, I think when all is said and done, most archaeologists will admit owing a serious debt to the Indiana Jones films. The immediate upshot of the film's popularity was the active participation of Harrison Ford, the actor who portrayed Jones, to mount a campaign in support of archaeological preservation programs, on the national and state levels, his election as an honorary spokesman for the Archaeological Institute of America, and ultimately his and other actors' roles in campaigning against, actively against looting and site destruction. Because of his participation these camp- in these campaigns, stricter anti-looting laws and enforcement measures were, en- were enacted that are enforced to this day. That higher profile contributed significantly to enhancing public awareness to encouraging education of the past in school curricula and ultimately to a comprehensive appreciation of environmental and cultural resource preservation. It is our hope that this mindset can withstand the trials and tribulations of the present economic crisis and one of our missions of this series is to encourage that, that way of thinking through exposure to the profession's many facets. In this show, we're going to deal with a broad reach of topics as accurately as one can do in a radio format. That's a tough thing to do in a field that is so visual by nature, but I think this is an experiment with a lot of potential, and I look, a lot, I look forward to having you with me as we proceed with it. We'll be back shortly with our first guest, Dr. Eric Klein, and we'll be discussing the myth of Indiana Jones and its relationship to archaeology in the Mediterranean and in the lands of the Bible. Stay tuned. News. Opinion.
2: Explore the power and beauty in yourself and in others. Tune in to The Stacy Stern Show, enriching you. Every week, Stacy Stern will connect you with men and women who are living and working from a place of passion. Stacy's guests include successful authors, filmmakers, actors, experts, and leaders. You'll hear what inspires each of them, and you'll be turned on to great films, books, and new media. Tune in to The Stacy Stern Show, enriching you. Tuesdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. It's all about action. Touchdown!
1: Scores. Taking a look at the NBA tonight. Highlights. He's broken loose.
2: He's at the 30. And headlines.
0: Big trade in the NFL this afternoon. When you are looking
2: to talk sports, look no further than the Voice America Sports Network. We bring you some of the biggest names and all the sports news you can handle. Whether it's basketball. Off the glass. Football. Come on. Golf. Boom. Racing. Or the Olympics. We've got you covered. We'll even cover tailgating. Tune into the Voice America Sports Network. It's all things sports. Streaming live, the leader in internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
0: listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra
1: Now, back to the program. My guest this afternoon is Professor Eric Klein, who is a professor of archaeology at George Washington University. Eric is an acknowledged leader in biblical archaeology, and I brought him here because he's also a talented popularizer of archaeology to the general public, and we are trying to dispense a message that will reach a broad audience. So, uh, Eric, thank you so much for showing up. Appreciate your presence.
3: My pleasure. Thank you for having me on your show.
1: I would like to start by asking you a little bit about how your students respond to Indiana Jones and what their images of Indiana Jones, and whether or not that has factored into their uh, impetus to actually take
3: archaeology courses and to pursue it somewhat. Yeah, great, excellent question. Yes, most of them by by this time are heavily influenced by Indiana Jones. When I uh, pass around an information survey sheet on the first day of my introduction to archaeology class most of them write that they've seen the movies and a majority of them are in the class because they liked it they liked the movie they wanted to be archaeologists they wanted to see what it was about and so many of them are uh, shall i say distraught when on the first day (laughs) of class i put up a big picture of indiana jones and then i draw a red x through him and i say this is not archaeology (laughs) on the other hand You know, if they watch the movie on a Saturday afternoon, it's a great movie, it's lots of fun, all, you know, all four of them. And what they learn wrong on Saturday afternoon, I can fix in class on Monday. So, if the movie gets them into my classroom, that's great
1: now is their response basically that they think all the swashbuckle and all the swagger is part of the profession or they know that it's a little tongue-in-cheek and it's a bit exaggerated and how do you sort of disabuse them of that and actually work them into an
3: appreciation of what archaeology is all about well I I think some of the some of the more knowledgeable ones know that it's tongue-in-cheek and exaggerated but others think that that's really the way it is I mean Indiana Jones has become the popular face of archaeology, whether we like it or not, followed fairly closely by Laura Croft, though as a tomb raider, of course we abhor what she does but so i I say both you know those of you that like Indiana Jones well, be aware he 's not really doing archaeology the way we do it, and Laura Croft, please do not emulate her, and I draw a big red X through her as well, so there 's a lot of Fallen faces after the first day, but I, I say the actual archaeology is m- even more interesting than Indiana Jones's fictional uh, uh, exploits. And they begin to
1: appreciate that at certain point. However, I'm sure that they also are wondering about the actual archaeological adventures. For example, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the pursuit of the Ark of the Covenant. That has always been sort of a famous pinpointing kind of experience for archaeologists. There have been searches underway for the Ark of the Covenant, among other biblical uh features like Noah's ark and chariots of the pharaohs etc cetera, etc cetera. have had any of those issues come up and have they actually asked you about searches for these types of uh biblical artifacts and treasures
3: oh yes they come up all the time and it's not just my students that ask me it's the general populace it's my wife's grandmother i mean it's the type <laughs> of thing that we're asked at parties all the time yeah and and actually i take you know the proverbial bull by the horns in both my uh, archaeology class, uh, intro to archaeology, and my biblical archaeology class, where I know that's what they want to talk about, and so I, I intersperse uh, the topics that I want them to learn about. How do you actually excavate? How do you survey for sites? You know, what do you really do in biblical archaeology? With the topics that they want to hear about. So you know, when we're when we're discussing, for example. The time period of the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the second millennium BC, in my Archaeology of Israel class, you know, I'll say, okay, now we're talking about this period, and I know you've got questions about the patriarchs, so let's address them. And when we get to uh, the time of David and Solomon, for example, I'll say, okay, now some of you are wondering where the Ark of the Covenant is. Well, let's discuss and uh, devote some class time to it. So, you know, these are issues that, that get the students to take the class in the first place, and it does no good to ignore them. So I I address them, and uh, that way, I think we all go away happy. I'm able to teach them what I think is proper biblical archaeology, and they're able to go away with um, trivia that they can use at cocktail parties, where they can impress their friends and family. You know, where well, the Ark of the Covenant isn't here, it might be here, or, you know, this, that, and the other. So, you know it's uh... it's a matter of addressing reality with practicality What are they why are they in the class and why am i teaching the class and i think there's uh... there's room for compromise speaking of the ark of the covenant i was in fact involved
1: in one of those projects way back when i was a graduate student it was a project that was funded by an amateur and uh... to make a very long story short I was able to uh, lead an expedition that um, looked for the ark. And under some very false pretenses, a man had had a vision. He thought that a uh, that the ark of the covenant was actually buried in one of the caves near the vicinity uh, of where the Dead Sea Scrolls were were uh, discovered. And he had this vision. Had hired some people to come out with him. And to look for this thing, uh, they thought they had found it. They had found a rubble wall, they thought, that was actually sealing in a cave that had never been discovered before. Um, my expertise involved looking at the deposits that sealed in the cave. I looked at those deposits, figured out that they were natural spring deposits, that they in fact sealed in a cave that was only uh, 20 centimeters high so it was in fact a solution feature which is what a cave is but no human being could possibly have gotten in there and so I actually had to disabuse this gentleman of the idea that this was the uh, final resting place of the Ark of the Covenant he was distraught out about forty, fifty thousand 50000 dollars and I was actually back in my research area where I had to do some additional uh, work for my dissertation had a free plane ticket And did my work. Now, this is not to say that I exploited this particular situation, but it's one of those situations where you sort of are at the interface of professional archaeology and this kind of pseudo archaeology that sometimes gets generated when you're working with folks who have very traditional and orthodox and sometimes even fanatic positions on what biblical archaeology is and how to go about demonstrating it. So I think you're right. I think we do have to disabuse our uh, our uh, students of, of these sorts of things and uh, sort of let them understand what is real in archaeology and how far it can go and how far the scriptures actually can dictate where archaeology is. So if we might pursue this theme a little bit further, uh, what are your thoughts on the archaeology of the Exodus and the timing and what kind of information we have for that?
3: Well, this all goes basically to the same the same source here, which is is biblical archaeology trying to prove the Bible or not, uh, and and it's not actually biblical archaeology is completely separate from whether or not the uh, the events and people and places in the Bible are true or not. Biblical archaeology is really trying to examine the the people and the places in the biblical lands during the time that the stories took place, but. You know, we're not trying to determine if the Exodus took place or not. We're not trying to actually find the Ark of the Covenant. We're not trying to determine where Noah's Ark is. Those are all things that the general public is looking for. And in fact, um, in terms of disabusing my students, it's also something that uh, matters a great deal to me is educating the public where Almost every year, somebody announces that they've either found Noah's Ark or they're going out looking for it or they've found the Ark of the Covenant or they're looking for it or they know where the exodus took place. I mean, you see this on television shows almost every year. Uh, and you will see uh, things have come quite a long way since the days when you went out with that expedition. Nowadays, um, professional archaeologists will virtually never join those kind of expeditions because they, they know that they're basically a waste of, of time and energy and money, which is much better spent uh, digging in a place that we know, like like Megiddo, for example, one of the sites that I'm um, a director at. Megiddo is biblical Armageddon. We know that it's um, a biblical site. We don't have to go looking for it. We know where it is. So if we can excavate at Megiddo, we can answer quite a few questions about what, what life was like back then. Similarly, digging at, at Biblical Hazor, or digging at Biblical Gezer, uh, three cities that the Bible says Solomon fortified. I mean, you don't have to mount an expedition to Mount Ararat in order to try and do Biblical archaeology. It's an awful lot easier and cheaper if you just call up your local um, university and ask if you can get involved in a real archaeological uh, excavation. You might not find the Exodus, but then, you know, you might actually find some interesting things that will wind up in a museum. So every year I get calls, oh, I have found the Exodus, come look at my stuff. And every year I think, no, you haven't, because it's nearly impossible to find such things. But we're at the point where in doing archaeology, you can usually neither prove nor disprove uh, the biblical stories. But again, that's not what we're after we're after trying to recreate life back then to figure out what life was like in the times of David and Solomon and the time of Jesus. We're actually out trying to figure out what the people were like. We're not usually on wild goose chases like uh, Indiana Jones would be.
1: And I think in that respect, one of the... Uh... Uh, concepts that I think a lot of people need to be familiar with is that a lot of these biblical pl- places have foundations in reality, but that uh, the way to go about this is to look at what these settlements are about, not to look for specific items, but to look at people and to look at how people live at these particular points in time. One of the things I do want to get into with you, Eric, is to talk about the distributions of those major cities that you've talked about, Hazor, Megiddo, and those places Places which are really tells or elevated mounds in which cities grew. And uh, if we could talk about that a little bit, I think that would be very beneficial to folks who are trying to get away from this idea that we really need to find things that indicate that the Bible was true. And rather than that, we need to look at what social and organizational and political life was about at the time of these particular periods of time which take us from basically the Bronze Age through the Iron Age and beyond to the time of Jesus. So when we get back I think what we'd like to talk to Eric about is what he can enlighten us on about the distribution of these biblical sites and what they can tell us about social organization, economics, and the politi- political situations that existed during biblical times. And I think that would be much more informative to the general public. I think uh, on that note, we will be back after a few words.
2: stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast all the time the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts voiceamerica.com <laughs>
0: You're listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-geoarc.com.
1: Now, back to the program. This is Joe Ryan. I'm back with my guest for the hour, Dr. Eric Klein from George Washington University, professor of archaeology. And we were talking about the significance of looking at the lands of the Bible in terms of archaeological features and what that can tell us about their social organization and if it can cast any light on the Bible or whether the Bible can cast any light on those particular sites. And one of the critical uh features of these sites is that they're mounds that ha- contain the rubble and destruction and the structure of cities that were built from the Bronze Age through the Iron Age and the various layers give us information on the development of these city-states and, and villages and how they how they were organized and what they can tell us about the societies during biblical times. Eric, if you want to pick up on your
3: particular excavations on Megiddo, I would appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Megiddo, which is located in Israel, uh, it's actually biblical Armageddon. Uh, the word, uh, Armageddon comes from Har Megiddo, which is the, uh, the mound or the mountain of Megiddo. So from Har Megiddo you get Harmageddon, from Armageddon you get Armageddon. So we're actually digging at biblical Armageddon, uh, which, uh, I'm the associate director there, uh, along with Israel Finkelstein and David Yushishkin. And what we've got there is a mound, a man-made mound, which was about 70 feet high originally. Let me stop
1: you for one second here. So you're saying that Armageddon does have its origin in the Hebrew language, correct?
3: Absolutely. Yes, uh, absolutely. It's the Mound of of Megiddo. Right, so this is a good example uh, of a place that's mentioned in the Bible that is actually a real place, and you don't actually have to go searching for it because we already know where it is. But uh, having said that, the excavations of Megiddo are are very complex because in this 70-foot-high man-made mountain are the remains of 20 cities, one on top of another, with the earliest dating back to about 3,000 B.C., so 5,000 years ago, and uh, the latest of the 20 cities uh, dating to about 300 B.C., so just after the time of Alexander the Great. And within these, we have all kinds of time periods, so early Bronze Age, Middle Bronze Age, Iron Age, the Israelites, uh, everything that's there. Uh, and in fact, one of the uh, time periods that we are concentrating on is one city where there are um, uh, there's a city gate and there's a palace, which uh, Yigal Yadin, the famous Israeli archaeologist, had thought dated to the time of David and Solomon. In fact, he said it was built by Solomon, and he pointed to a passage in the Bible, uh, in the Book of Kings, that says that Solomon fortified the cities of Megiddo, Hazor, and Gezer, as well as Jerusalem. And indeed, at Hatzor and Gezer, there is something very similar to the uh, entry gate at Megiddo. And Yadin thought that these were the cities that had been built by Solomon, in particular to house the horses for his chariots. There's another passage in the Book of Kings that talks about the chariot cities of Solomon. So uh, this actually illustrates a rather interesting point within the archaeology that we're doing, because in more recent decades, since the time of Yadin, who was digging in the 50s and the 60s into the 70s, uh, starting in the 90s, uh, some of the archaeologists were questioning whether these levels at Megiddo and Gezer were actually belonging to Solomon, and said, "No, no. In fact, we've got the dating wrong. They date about hundred years later to uh, the time period of, say, Omri or Ahab, the kings of Israel." So one and, of the things and that the we were
1: justification for the the change
3: in the chronology is based on what is based on the pottery that uh, ah. the dating of the pottery had been misidentified. And you have to realize that in the levels that we're digging in there, 900 B.C., 1,000 B.C., 1,100 B.C., this is before coins have been invented. Coins are not invented till about 700 B.C., so we have to date things through other means, radiocarbon dating, dendrochronology, and pottery, pottery seriation. You know, pottery goes in and out of style, just like clothing does today, uh, and you can actually, using a variety of methods, you can actually figure out how to date these sites using the thousands upon thousands of pottery sherds that you find. So one of the debates ongoing in biblical archaeology right now is who built these city gates and the palaces and the stables that Yadin thought had been built by Solomon, but others now say are maybe a hundred years later. And so this is a very big debate, very fascinating uh, academic debate that archaeology is um, going to be able to resolve one way or another. And for me, doing this act of archaeology using science and uh, and great um, technology is uh, far more interesting than going out looking for an an ark, whether it's Noah's Ark or the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, Because uh, we're after, like I said, trying to recreate what life was like back then uh, and what King did what, what it was like for the average person living during Solomon's reign or some other time period. This is what's fascinating, is to see how different and yet how similar we are in so many ways
1: i agree with that i just want to get back to one point if you could enlighten the audience a little bit about how armageddon became armageddon based on the uh, the myth of of, of Megiddo and how did that evolve and how did that myth and legend and uh, evolve into into uh, a situation where this is such a critical issue in in religious theology
3: well, this is a whole, uh, a whole other story, but I can tell you very briefly that uh, at Megiddo, there have been 34 battles already fought in or around the city. I, I wrote a book on it that came out about 10 years ago called "The Battles of Armageddon," uh, and there have been battles fought for control of Megiddo and the Jezreel Valley over which it, it looks and stands, because this is an international trade route, and it has been all the way you know, through antiquity. Whoever controls the Jezreel Valley controls Israel. Whoever controls Megiddo controls the Jezreel Valley. So lots of um, battles fought all the way back from 1500 B.C., the time of Tutmosis III, the Egyptian pharaoh, right up through um, 1948 uh, and then 67 and 73. But really 1948 was the last battle fought at Megiddo. And we, in fact, found in 2008 and 2010 bullets and used cartridge cases from that 48 war but where it really comes from is the book of revelation and john saying that the uh, forces will gather uh, in the place that in hebrew is called armageddon for the penultimate battle of good versus evil and so the question really becomes how did the author of the book of revelation namely john how did he pick megiddo why did he pick megiddo he could have picked uh, Jerusalem, but he's saving that for the final battle. He could have picked Rome, which would have been more likely. But basically it comes down to what had happened previously in the Jezreel Valley. Uh, and long story short, it's because a king of Judah named Josiah was killed at Megiddo back in 609 B.C. Uh, and if you look in um, in the Bible at the genealogy of Jesus, uh, his genealogy is taken back <laughs> through Josiah, to David and John, in putting this battle at Megiddo, is able to get, um, not only a victory for the sight of good, but also, um, uh, basically, um, justice and revenge for the death of Jesus's ancestor, namely Josiah. So uh, it's very hard to get into the head of people of a person who lived 2,000 years ago and why did they write what they wrote. But basically, I think he looked around and said, where else can I put a major battle in Israel that's not Jerusalem? And the Jezreel Valley jumped out at him because um, uh, Deborah and Barak fight there, Saul and Jonathan fight there. Uh, there's all kinds of battles that would have been familiar not only to John, but to uh, his readers, uh, including to today. So um, Megiddo makes its way into the general knowledge as a result of what John wrote in simply one sentence uh, in Revelation, Revelation 16, 16.
1: And this legend lives on and on and on and gets expanded and expanded upon ad infinitum. Right. It's very very intriguing. Uh, let's move on then to other parts of the Mediterranean basin, which clearly were very, very closely associated with the emergence of Western civilization. Let's move on to Greece and your, some of your work in that area, if you would talk about
3: that a little bit. Well, we get somewhat the same situation. There's a number of sites uh, in Turkey, for example, that have relations with Greece, where we also have man-made mounds. Uh, for example, the city of Troy, where the Trojan War is supposed to have taken place. That has been excavated uh, for more than a hundred years, and it's got nine cities, one on top of another. Right? Megiddo's got 20 cities buried, uh, Troy has nine cities buried. And there we've got the question, well, we've got a couple questions, but, for example, did the Trojan War actually take place? This is, um, uh, you know, a question that has not yet been resolved. And if it did take place, then which of the nine cities at Troy uh, is the one that, that uh, Homer... Talks about that Hector and Achilles fought, that Agamemnon was there, the Troy that Helen was taken to. And again, there's no sign at Troy saying Helen was here. And in fact, there's no sign that says it was actually Troy. The later Greeks and Romans thought it was, but um, we actually have no real proof that we're actually digging in the right place. So there again, it's a fascinating problem for the archaeologist. But even leaving aside the whole question of, of the Trojan War, uh, you've got just very interesting nine cities, one on top of another, uh, at Troy or with uh, the modern name for the site, which go from early Bronze Age all the way down through the Roman period. Now, other sites, for example, in Greece, are not built one on top of another. Uh, when when they uh, rebuild, they, they sometimes simply rebuild the same place, or they move next door and we have that uh, more often in the new world for example here in north america uh the, the people when they're rebuilding would simply build nearby they wouldn't build right on top so you know we do have the mound builders and such but these man-made mounds these tells are really found over in the old world in turkey in israel in syria in jordan in iran and iraq so these uh then involve Stratigraphy, trying to figure out the layers of the cities, uh, and to my mind, it's um, absolutely fascinating because you're doing hard physical labor with picks and shovels. You know, we don't use dental tools and such or toothbrushes unless we find a skeleton. Usually, you're trying to move tons of earth at a time uh, all all day from 5 a.m. to 1 p.m. and then in the afternoon, you're trying to figure out what you found. So you're using your mind. And then in the evening, you're relaxing. So it's the the best of all possible worlds, physical, intellectual, social. It's uh, like summer camp for adults, but for six weeks. And if you want to go on one of these digs, why, we're we're digging at Megiddo this summer. And just, just let us know. We'll take um, uh, pretty much anybody from age 18 to 120 uh, that's in good physical shape. If you always wanted to dig, come dig on a real site and come dig with us at Megiddo this summer. And on that note, I would like to thank Eric Klein for joining us in this
1: very informative segment on uh, mythology and the Bible and what really archaeology is all about. And uh, we appreciate your participation, Eric, and we will be back shortly to present a final segment and discuss the significance of these discussions. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you.
2: Simulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain respired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com
1: Stay at 8 a.m. Pacific for the Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Bacilli, Radio to
2: thrive by...
0: Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra
1: geoarccom
0: Now, back to the program.
1: We're back. Uh, I would like to again express my appreciation to Dr. Eric Klein for his insightful comments on the significance of archaeology in explaining biblical legends and stories. I think we come away with a greater appreciation of the subtle connection between material fact and oral and written traditions. The message here, I think, is that many places named in the Bible are real but that the events that took place there may have been embellished or emerged in light of evolving religious, social, and political traditions and realities. And secondly, let's probably not be obsessed with reconciling the written accounts with the archaeological inv- events in a strict sense. Let's, let's just keep that in the back of our head. We have gotten, in this respect, a few emails, and uh, I would like to go through a couple of them just to get... Uh, a general fla- give you a general flavor of what kind of comment we are getting. Email number one writes, I understand that you don't necessarily take the Bible, in this case the Old Testament, at its word. However, my belief is that some, if not all of these events, are real. How would you go about explaining something like Noah's flood? Well, that's a very, very interesting and provocative question. As Eric discussed, these biblical tells are city-states contain layers upon layers of dirt called archaeological strata or horizons. These are divided and sorted out by the types of artifacts within within them, and they're divided on the basis of age and dated through a variety of different types of indicators, for example, pottery and radiocarbon, again, as Eric indicated. So that, for example, many near-eastern tells show continuous or semi-continuous occupation since the Bronze Age, approximately 3,500 years B.C., Very often, however, these cultural horizons, which are rich in artifacts, are separated from each other by what we call natural horizons or deposits that are devoid of cultural materials. In that case, we may have evidence that that a geological agency, most commonly water, wind, or slope action or erosion, has laid down the horizon which has no or minimal evidence for former occupation or cultural activity. Geologists are often brought onto the site to interpret the actual source of the natural deposit. The geologist can look at the deposit and determine from its structure and other properties what the probable source of that deposit is. Was it water? Was it wind? Or was it slope activity? That turns out to be one of my areas of expertise. And so that now, in the case of Noah's flug that you talk about, I was involved in an examination of exactly these types of deposits in Iraq at a city-state called Kish. Kish was one of the most important city-states of the Mesopotamian culture, and it occupied a floodplain setting uh, along the Tigris and Euphrates River system. The Epic of Gilgamesh, which many of you may have heard of, was a major Mesopotamian source from which the Noah's Ark story may originally have been derived. I won't get into the details of the Old Testament versus the Epic of Gilgamesh, which came first, but in any case... At the base of that tell, there was a deposit of sediment that was very, very thick, had no artifacts, and could be demonstrated to have come from a major flood event along the Tigris-Euphrates system. More significantly, a series of other tells aligned with that river system. Featured similar flood deposits, same thickness or relatively thick deposits, and so that meant that this flood was not simply localized but it extended both upstream and downstream of Kish along the same river system. In other words, this was a pretty catastrophic event. A possible explanation is that this major event was recounted by the assemblers of the ancient texts or their informants and incorporated into the Bible or other significant texts. It is possible that this event may even have been of such a magnitude and climatically regulated that it might be reflected in other rivers across the Middle East and beyond. It could have been recorded in several independent holy texts, for all we know. Now then, geologists do the same type of work on floodborne deposits when they try to estimate the extent and scope of hurricane-based inundations, such as the one that took place on the East Coast several weeks ago, Hurricane Irene. So I hope that answers your question. I think we can use the science to sort of uh, develop explanations for what actually is presented in the accounts. A second email. What do you know about Jericho? Well, Jericho is an interesting situation. Ancient Jericho is set in the Jordan Valley north of the Dead Sea, and it occupies one of the lowest and driest places on Earth. Jericho is a modern city, but it contains evidence for more than 20 successive prehistoric and historic settlements since the uh, onset of what's known as the postglacial period that we call the Holocene, the most recent period in geological time that goes back about 10 or 11,000 years ago. Jericho is considered to be one of the oldest continuously inhabited cities in the world. The famous Tell of Jericho is one of the most impressive sites of the biblical world. The site features a wall and tower complex nearly four meters high, now interpreted as having functioned as a flood control feature, here again calling attention to the fact that the prehistoric inhabitants were familiar with the flow regimes of the adjacent Jordan River. This is presumably the location to which Joshua led the Israelites when they were freed from bondage in Egypt. But I can't tell you anything about Joshua or whether or not that story is true. The site owes its existence in this stark environment to a presence of an extensive spring network. That would have sustained its ancient population, much as it continues to sustain its present inhabitants. Jericho differs from the other tells that we discussed in this episode insofar as its occupation precedes that of more uh, traditional biblical tells by over five to seven thousand years. So this site could be a real quagmire for classic Old Testament historians who claim that the world is only fifty seven hundred seventy two years old. One of the key components of this site is that it contains a near complete history of occupation going back to pre-pottery days. The site was excavated by the famous and tempestuous archaeologist Dr. Kathleen Kenyon in the 1940s and 50s. She would be an apparent, a current, she is one of those colorful persona who might easily have been cast in an Indiana Jones movie. The site at Jericho is a sort of archive for the last 10,000 years of human history in the Holy Land as its record of occupation documents nearly all of the major periods in history of that part of the world. And I personally would say that if you wanted to take a snapshot of the march of history in the Holy Land, that's the place to go. Third email that we just got goes as follows. It seems to me that archaeology in the land of the Bible is performed somewhat differently than the way it is in the United States. And what do you think? Again, that's an excellent and complex question that I can only begin to touch upon in the time that we have left. Eric started to to address the issue when he pointed out the difference between Near Eastern mounds and their vertical buildup and North American sites, also mounds, which have slightly more variable spatial configuration. I would add that, to that that until relatively recently, and I would qualify this since uh, I have to admit that I'm not an expert in biblical archaeology per se. A lot of my experience is in North America and uh, in earlier periods in the old world. But that the excavation in that part of the world had concentrated, in, certainly for the biblical period, in monumental architecture and focused to a large degree on the artifacts of the elite segments in the, uh, of society. That has not been the case for the past several decades uh, in, in biblical archaeology, I know, but it was certainly so until the latter 20th century. North American archaeology has a much more anthropological perspective based in part, I would, I would suggest, on the fact that large-scale architectural manifestations are not really as commonplace across much of the continent and that prehistoric excavations focus in general, and this is a generic statement, they focus on less spectacular features. And that, of course, can get me in some trouble with some of my colleagues, so uh, let me just sort of stop at that particular point here. However, this is an appropriate segue uh, for previewing uh, next week's episode where we are going to, the archae- we're going to stress the uh, archaeology of some of the more spectacular sites in North America, specifically the prehistory and archaeology of the American Southwest. Our guests are going to be Dr. Stephen Lexton of the University of Colorado, who has written extensively on uh, recent social organization phenomena in the American Southwest, and Mr. Corey Bretternitz of the archaeological company Paleo West, West Company, based in Phoenix, Arizona. He has done extensive excavations in that part of the world and will provide a practical uh, insight into how these sites are actually done. Until then, thanks so much for listening. And remember that your understanding of the past is a guide to a more promising tomorrow. See you next time.
0: Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow.